Welcome to Buzzword Bingo, a podcast that explores enterprise tech topics through in-depth interviews with industry experts. Today, we'll be diving into the complicated and ever-evolving world of ransomware. For organizations both big and small, dealing with a cyber attack continues to be a pervasive top-of-mind threat. Join us as we delve into the current ransomware landscape and learn how you can take a multi-layered approach to data protection. Hello, and welcome to Buzzword Bingo. I'm Andrew Miller. Today, we're going to explore the evolving world of ransomware and best practices for keeping your data safe. There's even a little bit of you know, surprising staying power for ransomware we'll discuss. We've been talking about this for a while, after all, but the landscape does keep evolving. Currently, I'm responsible for technical marketing here at Rubrik, but more importantly for this conversation, for the last year and a half, I've been talking about and presenting on ransomware. You can find various pieces of that online. However, even back when I was on the customer side for about seven years, to have specific responsibilities around firewalls, config browsers, antivirus, proxy servers, network filters, you know, that kind of thing. Joining me today is Darren Swift, system engineer at Rubrik. And I'm, I'm really excited to pick your brain, Darren, about this topic and would love you to introduce yourself as well. Hey, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, as Andrew said, my name is Darren Swift. I'm a systems engineer at Rubrik. For the last 10 years, I've mostly been focused on cloud automation and virtualization within this ecosystem. Around three years ago, I started to speak around ransomware as we've seen it evolving. And much like Andrew, I have attended many events, done a lot of self-learning, but also spoke around the ransomware landscape as we see it today and how it's evolved over three years. And also what we can do to sustain this and keep ransomware away. So uh, I'm excited to be here today and it should be good. Just to kick it off, ransomware as a topic has been around for a while. You know, we could even say it's you know, kind of graduated into buzzword status. This is buzzword bingo after all. And it doesn't seem to be going away really anytime soon. So that's why we're talking about the surprising staying power. With that said, ransomware today isn't really even the same as it was five years ago. There's been quite an evolution. On my end, I really enjoy talking about the whole ecosystem of ransomware vendors, if I can call that enjoy, because that are creating ransomware for for their unwilling customers, the people that get infected. And of course, there's channel partners in the middle. They can buy ransomware as a service kit, you know, that kind of stuff. Darren, what are you seeing in the ransomware system that's new relative to previous years? And we'll just go back and forth here all the way. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think, you know, first of all, the first ransomware, I'm not sure whether you know this, but was actually uh, distributed in the 1980s. And it was actually distributed on floppy disks. And they infected an awful lot of virtual, uh, well, an awful lot of machines. And this, you know, was basic forms of encryption. Uh, Ransomware, its base was just a base form of encryption. And they were targeting personal users, locking you out of your personal computer, Rather, you know, ingeniously or whichever side of the fence you sit on here, they soon realize that enterprises have more valuable data with being locked out of your data is, you know, it's the worst thing ever. Applications rely on CSVs, they're targeting databases, virtual machines. The list of the inclusions of file extensions that ransomware now targets is huge. So they're really looking to bring down as much of your infrastructure as possible. And even in your data protection, you know, ransomware, if you look at the early versions compared to Crypto Wall 4 and then Server 6, the actual advancement of these is has been quite staggering. And 
particularly server six even knows if it's being hunted as well if it's in a test and dev environment or a sandpit it even knows when it's being hunted the ransomware as a service it's crazy. They've given, you know, anyone can get this off a tour and distribute it to a target. And they even have customer service. So you can request this and they get a cut from the top. So I think ransomware has evolved an awful lot in terms of its complexity and its intelligence. So there was this great study by F-Secure in the last couple of years where they actually went and got infected intentionally. I think five different variants. You can find this online. At the end of it, they came away with some customer service recommendations that you know, normal IT help disk could benefit from the very unwilling ransomware customers, which is a little sad and funny all at the same time. What I find really fascinating here is the economic incentive, because to me, that is the bit, one of the biggest parts around staying power. If you have ransomware as a service kits, you know, like, like you mentioned, someone with a, you know, various degrees of technical knowledge can download them. And then there's even different business models, whether that's, you know, you pay a percentage or it's a flat fee to buy it. So with those things being out there, people are just going to keep trying, you know, maybe there's, these are people without some moral or ethical boundaries, but if they're outside of US jurisdiction, I mean, it's going to keep happening in various ways. Exactly. And I always say this is the easiest attack that they can sustain on any organization because once this is distributed and it finds a way into a network, it's easy. They're not expending time doing this. The ransomware as a service providers who are doing this underneath are obviously getting between 10 and 30% of any Bitcoins which are actually collected. And I think, you know, going into that, and we'll we'll circle back with this later, but I think the amount of ransomware strains that we will see develop throughout 2018 will stay near enough static because you have these ransomware as a service kits. They may get more intelligent underneath, but there is not now the need for certain organizations to create their own custom ransomware anymore. One other thing you mentioned that keyed off a thought of mine was the evolution of ransomware. And we're even starting to see some variants that are targeting backup software as well. That gets scary. And they're trying to actually, you know, disable various agents or maybe even even gestating for a while so that enough data is backed up that we're, we're past retention windows. I mean, this is all scary, not happy stuff, even if we're sitting in comfortable chairs talking about it right now. Yeah, I first came across that around 18 months ago. So, you know, ransomware is always looked for local copies to be deleted and lock you out that way. Then it actively going around your network and trying to find a backup target, querying the retention, like you say, and laying dormant for a while and then striking is a really scary prospect. There was one story, and this is one I've used for a while. While I do have to make it, you know, not customer identifiable, it was about a SQL DBA whose machine got infected by ransomware. I mean, that could happen to anyone potentially, right? And the ransomware reached out to the SQL server via, you know, SMBV3 connections. That's normal for a DBA to have that, you know, those connections set up, shared drives, encrypted the MDF LDF files. That's the database files, right? Then it reached out to the backup target because there was a a purpose-built backup appliance, which wasn't immutable. I'm sure we're going to wander into that concept more later. But end up encrypting the backup. So his machine, his primary databases, his backup data were all encrypted by ransomware. And, And to me, that's if there's a definition of a really, really bad day, that's it. That's a really bad day. Yeah. That is not a good day to even think about. And hopefully we get into later on of how we could actually stop that happening. I know. There was just literally news within the last few weeks on big ransomware attacks, such as the one in Atlanta. 
I know you had a couple thoughts there about recovery and the risk, some analysis there before we start moving to protection strategies. Yeah, exactly. I once sat through a, uh, it was a VP of a security company and they was talking around smart connected cities, the potential use of internet of things, all these connected devices. And they said, well, nowadays you could expect a full attack on a city. And, you know, in my mind, I just thought, well, die hard for, you know, there's a, someone running around and hacking the city. But when you think about what they've done with the Atlanta, they've targeted either intentionally or not, we don't know yet, the core services that are running Atlanta from different perspectives. And if those systems are old, they've not got updated malware detection, they're not isolated, it's risky. And I think from what I've seen in my experience, the first time anyone ever gets hit by ransomware is the scariest time. You don't know how far it's going to cross your network. You're pulling network cables out of the back. You're trying to stem the flow. And then you're trying to actually recover. I hate to say this, but you probably learn more from being attacked uh, because the second time it should never ever happen that way. And your response should be right up there in terms of you know exactly what you need to do. And I think that's the case with Atlanta. I mean, they've gone for over five days now and the services are still not back up and running, which suggest it's the wrong paper yeah it's the wrong paper right they're logging calls on paper right now um, so it suggests that they are in a little bit of trouble with their recovery we don't quite know what that is yet because they've been quite low uh, with the technical details but it'd be very interesting to see what the forensic analysis is after the atlanta attack because as a my rule number one they have to find the root cause of this they have to find the entry point Was it a weakness in their network? Was it someone bringing something into their network? Exactly what it was will mitigate that risk in future as well. As we start thinking a little bit about various protection strategies, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, as soon as we have a real security conversation, it should be defense in depth. There has to be multiple layers. With each of those layers, though, there has to be awareness of the operational impact. I mean, this is back when I used to do some of this stuff on the customer side. You know, all those layers that are great on paper, if they're not maintained, you know, when it comes to an attack, well, that's the classic scenario where there's all these alerts going on and people just aren't watching them. The way I thought about it over the years, there are some things that we can do pre-attack, things that you can do, whether it's human or technology or financial. And then, of course, there's after the fact or after the attack. That category usually does get into data protection, technology type stuff. Just to start off, and I'm sure we'll keep going back and forth a little bit. When we're thinking about before the fact or before the attack, the big first category that can be focused on is the human side, you know, around education. I know there are companies that like know before out there. Um, There's other things that internal IT training departments often do. What have you seen out there that is actually helpful from an education standpoint? I actually have a personal story around this. So when I was starting out in my career, the company I was at were actually very security focused. I actually viewed security at that point as inhibiting me from doing my job correctly. And as an IT person, I also think that we are the worst type of people because if we are blocked by security, we are generally savvy enough to try and get around it. That's where problems lie, right? So uh, training (laughs) and being disciplined about your training. But my personal story was they used to send out phishing emails as a test from the internal IT department. And it would come with the usual layer of warnings within your email client to say, are you sure you would like to click this isn't trusted? And, you know, as an IT person, I just clicked yes. And then I got a HTML screen informing me that I have now been selected for security training. 
<laughs> which was a good way to do it. And from a various conversations and presenting on ransomware, I've kind of built a, a slide around the users. And training is, is really important. But they're always going to be a weakest point because there are so many different levels. You have not just internal people, you have external people coming into your environment as well. You have to think about any maliciousness. The only way that I've ever seen this do be done with users in terms of training is, you know, lock down all permissions, give everyone the least privilege access management and try and limit the spread for what those users can actually do. Yeah, and I think anything around AD and software restriction policies for your users as well is, you know, completely and utterly 100% needed in this in this world for it. I was once speaking with the university. He turned around to me and said, "You think you've got problems? I have 20,000 students that turn up with bring your own devices, smartphones, NAS shares. They want to have access to the full reign." He said, that is my biggest risk is I get an influx of people that I can't train every single year on security. I know. I was presenting on this and afterwards a gentleman uh, had a conversation with Matthew Crape in Toronto. He said, you know, I recently got an email from iTunes. It was for a $50 purchase. And if you're like me, $50 isn't going to break the bank, right? But you're thinking, you know, what in the world did I buy or my wife or my kids? I mean, that's a pretty expensive app for your phone. And the only thing that was wrong with this email was the more information, like, you know, to dispute the purchase, they went to a legitimate looking page. And even if at that point you're smart enough not to put in your username and password on that page, I mean, if there's a zero day browser attack, someone's been storing up to get some value out of it, even just going to dispute the purchase, you now might be in trouble. Yeah, that's crazy. I've seen and heard. So uh, another one I was working with were a financial institution in the US and they got hacked not once, not twice, but three times by ransomware. And unfortunately... I will keep them nameless, of course, throughout this conversation, but the main perpetrator of all of this was a C-level person who would not have his permissions revoked, and his was the source entry to the ransomware every single time. I think, you know, in the end, the security team won favor with him to try and restrict him a little bit more, but they went through so much pain. Their first influx was crazy running around trying to recover. Their second one... They're now pros at it, you know, three times they know what they're doing, Um, but it shouldn't be that way. So there's the human aspect before the attack. The next thing I was thinking about is technology prevention. You know, this is, we've alluded to this a little bit. So this is, you know, before the fact, but technology focused. This can be antivirus, it's filtering and patching. And I think the main thing that I've seen here is you can spend a lot of time and money here. And it's really hard to know how far to go in this area. There are a lot of companies that have good products that can do good things here. What have you seen that makes the most sense? So, yeah, just to pick up on what you said before, you know, defense in depth is absolutely critical. There is now a market full of products which promise to address ransomware of some different form. The most effective I have seen with personal experience is the least privilege access model and restricting users with software restriction policies like AppLocker at the app data level, basically not allowing a user to install anything on their machine. But I've also looked at this for admins as well. So you should never be logging in to a virtual machine to download files, restrict the domain access, segregate off your network as much as possible. And these are things that you have the tools to do today, right? You don't have to go out and buy a specific product to segregate your network into user VLANs, update your firewall policies, 
use least privilege access management, remove audit permissions, so remove write access to file shares that don't require it, lock down your more important applications. There's also a great blog with kind there's a ton of free scripts out there at the moment as well, which have honey traps and alerting. So you can monitor a specific file share, just say in PowerShell, and it will inform you of any abnormalities in change rates. Just to show you, you know, there's a lot of free stuff that people out there can do right now. I think it's mostly down to the appetite of doing this, but also keeping up with it because once you set this in place, it's a forever moving target. So it's fine setting it up, but you've got to be on top of this all the time to try and do this. And like you say at the start, you could spend so long doing this and you never really know where is the weakest point. Right. That's where you and I talked a little bit about the impact of machine learning and uh, AI could have in this whole technology You know, before the attack focus. There's some really interesting possibilities there as far as starting to you know, analyze different data sets, you know, primary data, that kind of thing. And I remember that you were pretty excited about that. Yeah, I am. I've read a few interesting papers on this as well. So, you know, the use of AI and machine learning in the mitigation or detection of ransomware is a very hot topic right now. There's various different people using this at the moment. I suppose my obvious observation of this is whatever we have, these ransomware as a service organizations can also deploy. And so, you know, is it going to become the weaponization of artificial intelligence? I'm not sure. But there is a point where the other side can be using the same tools, right? So it's for me, it's almost down to the way that Server 6 tries to circumvent antivirus scanning and malware detection. It's going to be the same thing, but not programmed by us. It's going to be using machine learning and AI underneath to try and circumvent each other, which is fascinating, yet also incredibly scary. <laughs> there is this part of me that can be fascinated by this, you know, the technical side. And then, you know, the other part of my brain that's like, this could be really, really bad, even though it's fascinating. Yeah, it could be. And I actually attended uh, an AI, it was like an evening event a few weeks ago. And they were saying right now that AI and machine learning is still being fed by humans. So obviously, it's not as yet making all the decisions itself. Um, and as such, at the moment, it's detection level of such things as ransomware is not as high as traditional end-user technologies that we have on the market today. Um, but it, it's it's ramping very, very quickly. The one other before the attack area that I personally find interesting is financial. This was maybe about a year ago, I think, that I first read about how you can actually literally buy ransomware insurance policies or, or cyber defense insurance policies focused around ransomware which I find fascinating because it means there's companies out there, they're, they're, these are the ones that create financial products, if you will, and they've seen enough market demand to create these. Of course, the big caveat, there's a huge amount of fine print, just like your health insurance, car insurance, whatever insurance. With some of those, I actually noticed you know, the fine print is that you know you actually have to make sure that all the layers in your data system that may have been affected by a ransomware attack had to have been current on patches at the time of the attack. That's some pretty major fine print. And that actually does relate to what we've been alluding to before you know, around the complexity of your data center, the infrastructure. There are so many entry points, so many attack vectors. So currently, some people are actually buying these policies because they exist, you know, and it may be a worthwhile layer in their defense. But it does feel like it could be challenging to uh, collect, shall we say. Well, 
Yes, I wasn't aware of specific ransomware ones, but I have seen obviously cyber insurance, which has been floating around for quite a while now, and people are making quite a lot of money from that, of course. But yeah, ransomware, financial focus insurance is it's interesting. <laughs> That's gonna, it's not going to be cheap. And then obviously, will they pay out if there's certain terms and conditions? I'm not sure. And the last piece we've talked about before the attack you know, what you need for a, a human focus around education, a technical focus, even financial. But as we move on to after the effect and protection, you know, things that you can do to mitigate the impact of attack, it seems like everybody knows and talks about how you need to have data protection or backups. In this case, I don't think we should run away for the fact that we work for Rubrik, but you know, this isn't meant to focus on that for anyone listening. But we do spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff because of our day jobs. And as we've looked at that, the two main areas that we often think about are around the reliability of data restore and the speed of data restore. When I look at a ransomware scenario, that's what we classify as a high impact, low probability scenario. It's a big, big deal when it happens, but it's not happening every day. And it's not happening in the sense of how you have to maintain your backups every day. You know, that wall of red failed backup jobs you got to look at every morning. So when you think about that, you look at these highly complex systems on the data protection side that require lots of daily care and feeding. If those are your last line of defense, it just seems inevitable that the day you need it, whether it's a ransomware scenario or the boss's critical file or Susie from, from accounting with the payroll file, it may not be there. The complexity relative to the, the probability and the impact just seems to be asking for problems. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If your data is that valuable to you and your last line of defense is your backup, which let's be honest, in every single enterprise it is, then you need to make sure that you know, you're know you 100% covered. Um, I think you know, rolling back a little bit, ransomware was pitched as the largest security threat for many years in all of the big vendors' white papers on security. And this is because you know what you just said, it's it's high impact but low probability. But if you look this year already, 2018 seen 17 ransomware attacks, some of them really notable. Look at all scripts, the all scripts medical service. And with such a huge corporation, you would think their backup would be completely on point and on focus. And it took them days. And then we shouldn't ever forget the impact this has now as well. There's people on social media asking questions. Why can I not access this? Is it a service I pay you for, Mr. Supplier? And you can't invest in backup technologies which are powerful and simple enough to actually roll back an application to a, a point in time. It asks questions. And I think anyone who is impacted with ransomware and they do restore from backups, I think at the end of it, they will also be looking and evaluating, you know, what if that backup wasn't there? What if we couldn't get this? Should we evaluate our current backup infrastructure to make this more streamlined in the future? And um, these are all questions you've got to ask yourself if you're considering this threat or have been used by it. That does actually go into the two overarching topics I usually end up discussing when it comes to data protection or backups as it relates to ransomware. The, the two big are around the, the reliability of data recovery and also speed of data recovery. And is it just fundamentally there? So we can dig into that. And a lot of it seems to be around the simplicity of the systems that are being used or, or really rather their complexity. The more complex they are, the more likely it's not going to be there when you need it. And then the second point in parallel with that around simplicity is the concept of immutability. 
you know, when I'm presenting on this and I'm polling room, it seems like people are starting to hear about this term. Do you mind commenting on this, both the simplicity aspects as well as immutability? Sure. So I think, you know, this circles back to a conversation we had before with different strains of ransomware trying to target specifically your backup environment, whether it can find that in your segregated network. Maybe it can. It's important at that point to have your backups in a format which cannot be read or more importantly, modified by ransomware. And that's where we come back to this immutability. And, you know, if that's your last line of defense, then you've got to really consider that because if it's just sat there on your network and ransomware can read it, it is going to encrypt it, unfortunately. And then you've got to either try and decrypt it, pay the ransom, which we never recommend, or you've got your offsite and hopefully you have an offsite at that point. And however long that takes you to recover is then where the impact to that company is coming in, its users. We're bringing off-site backups back onto sites. We're now replaying them. It's, we've lost a big chunk of data as well. As you know, people typically keep data on site for 14 to 30 days, depending on different retention policies. It's a huge amount of data to lose. It's a huge amount of time to lose. It's a huge amount of financial and reputational damage that could potentially happen to that company as well. I've put data protection solutions in into companies in the past. And when ransomware was in the news an awful lot of the time, and it was front and center, they was buying products where they could test weekly, if not daily, their recoverability for their key systems. They wanted to be so practiced at this that if something did happen, they catch it, they find it, they restore. They are a a well-oiled machine underneath in getting this done because they knew the financial impact of this. This particular customer was a very, very large law firm. As you would imagine, in a law firm, they have a lot of case files, very important, sensitive information, which can't be lost. They have thousands of lawyers that depend on this every single day. Most of it floats around on email and file shares, etc. They just needed to bring this back as soon as possible with as little loss as possible because the ramifications for them were huge. So testing for them was just you know, 100% front of mind all the time. And that, it was quite refreshing because that went not just from the technical guys, it went all the way through to the the, the bosses, the C-level guys. I feel like that actually ties those two ideas together really well. So simplicity and immutability, because you know you need to do all the tests. And the more complex your product, the more involved all that testing is going to be. That means that only certain sizes and types of organizations can afford it, whether it's from a time perspective or a skill set perspective, just all those things to look at. Absolutely. What I find interesting about immutability is around the core concept of after the backup is taken, it's read-only. Historically, that's often been satisfied by sending tapes off-site, you know, totally disconnected. There are, fortunately, newer technologies today that can help with immutability in different ways that are more flexible than sending it off-site. Fundamentally, though, and, and unfortunately, it seems that people usually only think about that when it's too late. When we do look at products in the space, though, some approaches or products are immutable by default, period. You know, Some can't be made immutable at all. Some can be configured to be immutable, but you often don't think about that until you've been through the first attack. And that's almost the worst time to think about it. It's crazy. And I think this is the whole mindset that we have on security in, in a technology-focused world. And I think it's, you know, technology has advanced at such a rate and security has always been a few steps behind. Look at War Games. Remember the film War Games? It was actually in 1983 and Ronald Reagan 
asked if that could happen to NORAD sites. And after much deliberation, all these top advisors came back and went, actually, yeah, it could. They're all connected to the general net. They're open. We're susceptible. And it just seems we've been trying to catch up with this security all of the time. And yeah, it's the wrong way to have it in terms of once you're attacked, you know you need these things. But I think that's just the perception of security in the industry at the moment. I think that as we're wrapping up here, we've hit on reliability of data restore you know, via simplicity and immutability. There's also the aspect of testing around speed of data restore. You know, for me, sometimes when I'm presenting, I'll ask the audience, you know, if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? Usually no one really wants to take a stand on that, or maybe they just don't care. When it comes to restores, though, you know, I'll ask the corollary question of if you can't get your data back quickly enough to avoid major financial, organizational, reputational impact, do your backups really even exist at that point? And usually people in the room will kind of nod and say, you know, yeah, it actually doesn't. And that's kind of scary. So there are some really interesting things out there around different approaches to speed of data recovery, whether that's being able to live mount backups in a way that doesn't require rehydrating them, or even using APIs to get more granular about how to restore data in mass, but at an individual file level. As we're wrapping up, what all have you seen in that area? Yeah, I've seen I've seen quite a lot of work in the API area, pulling back specific files, folders, directories, which, you know, or any files or folders which are useful to you on your most critical service. And I've also seen uh, tools like uh, SheNoLocker. This is a friendly ransomware which exists on Google. You don't have to go on the Tor browsers to get this. And it uses a well-known encryption key. So even Windows Defender will find this and block it for you. And I've actually asked customers to you know test this, run this on a big file server, let it encrypt, and then see what your speed of recovery is. And is that point fast enough for you? And more importantly, is your data loss satisfactory level? If you lose 24 hours of a database's data, is that acceptable to your business in, in terms of the risk that they're willing to sign off on? I would argue, no, it needs to be a little bit more aggressive, right? That's a full working day of data loss. And it feels like we've got enough stories here that we could keep going for a while, but I think that is a great point yeah. to end on. Just thinking about what we've referred to in different ways, whether it's around you know, the different ways to protect or different ways to recover with reliability and simplicity. Of course, the best defense is defense in depth and spending time consciously thinking through ahead of time and architecting. Any final thoughts that you want to include, Darren? Leverage the free tools out there. There's some great training. We actually over in the UK now have the National Cybersecurity Center, which run, they run workshops for enterprises for people who have no knowledge of security. Maybe you're a small customer, part of a larger customer. You can be anyone. It's all free training. You also get a free portal where they'll send you all the latest threats and alerts. Other than that, you know, go on to Google, go to things like Talos blog our bleeping computer, and they have some great resources whereby you can see all of these threats coming through. And it's not... What I always say with this is when I'm speaking to people is I was self-taught in this area and I've done this through mostly free tools and free resources. So it is out there. And there's also the No More Ransomware project as well. So I'd advise people to get on board with that. And obviously, leverage everything that you've got in that environment and apply logic with the tools you've got today, assess your backup and restore capability. Is it good enough? I and mean, like you said, it's, it's high impact, low probability, but you don't want to be that high impact. Thanks for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. 
For those interested hearing more of your thoughts on this and probably other topics too, where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So thank you for having me as well. It's been great. So you can follow me on Twitter at uh, diff underscore 11. And my blog is virtuallyonit.com where I will blog about many ransomware <laughs> projects. Yes. You can find me as well on Twitter at Andriven. I'm also a, a semi-active blogger, whether it's on the Rubric blog or my own blogs. You can find me at thinkmeta.net. Stay up to date with buzzword bingo and industry trends by following us on Twitter at rubricinc, at R-U-B-R-I-K-I-N-C. Thanks for listening.